Hey, I know you guys want to get to the podcast, but if you're a new listener, there are so many people who we have interviewed at this point, and the coronavirus has given us unprecedented access to all the people we've always wanted to talk to. Next up, Barack Obama. We just had... Um, the, <laughs> had Lydia Yankovska, we, yeah. we had Jennifer Rivera-Rice, we had Russell Thomas, Emily Pogorelts, Justin Werner, Zachary James, Laura yes. Dixon Strickling. All right, all right, that's all right, right, just, right, right. That's just, yeah, that's just during the coronavirus, yeah. but um, That's just off the top of my head during the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we're all looking forward to our very special episode where we hold a seance and uh, talk to the spirit of Wagner for an entire hour. <laughs> Yeah, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to join us for that one. She's going to take... Oh, she has something to say. I, you know, the world's ultimate opera fan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, um, Renee Fleming and Joyce DiDonato, um, they both wanted to be on, so we're just going to put them on the same call because, you know, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. So that's... <laughs> that's, that's coming We're just up too soon. busy. We have, we have too many people booked. We're going to put them together. Nene seems fine with it. But seriously... Uh, Subscribe to the podcast on however you listen to podcasts and then just scroll down into our archives and see who we've interviewed. Usually their names appear as the title of the episode. And don't forget to share on Facebook and share on Twitter, even though we probably are not tweeting. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show that's normally live, but just a podcast for now, about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, doing the solo best of show tonight. We got three segments, as always, dipping in this week into our past archives featuring American artists. Matt Cummings on Leontine Price, Weston Williams on composer John Adams, and Ashley Hardgrave on Beverly Sills. We're going to give you a break from Oliver Camacho's voice a little bit, I think, at least, and you'll get a blast from the past with Tobias Wright. Let's talk a little bit of sports. In the news, of course, right now is should teams like the Cleveland Indians and the Washington Redskins changed their logos and their monikers. It is amazing to me that this hasn't already happened. Clearly, that change is overdue. My question is, could you get an opera phrase or even just a musical term in for a sports team? I can't think of a single major league team that references music in some way. The closest thing I can think of is a Canadian football team, which is called the Alouettes. And Alouette is an old French song. Alouette, gentil Alouette. If you can think of a sports franchise with a musical name, or if you have an idea, let us know. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. Let's talk some opera. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. 
Thank you, Norm. Can I just reiterate how great that that intro is? Uh, Did anybody not pee in their pants just now? (laughs) All three of us were standing there with our hands up in the air just God bless. I have tears streaming. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams in Studio 2. George Cedarquist here in Studio 1. Opera box score in your ear holes. 89.3 FM WNUR, Edmonston, Chicago. Thanks for hanging out with us after a week off. Uh, I'm not going to wish you a, quote, happy Memorial Day like our inane That's president. That's We don't need to go for uh, Yeah, that, we're, right? not, we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to throw the, a long pass to Matt Cummings over there. Very long. In studio he caught it. Two. He got it. Hey. I've been such a good student. You caught the ball, Matt. Did so, you get picked last, by the way? Oh, on, like, every kick? time. Every time. <laughs> Matt, if you were a basketball player, I think you'd be... A three. I know what that means now. Uh, but And I want to talk about my number one, which is Leontine Price. Oh, yes! Nice. Uh, it, was, I, it was hard to pick someone that was, you know, the right balance of someone who was totally prolific and, ever, and you could talk about for 20 minutes and still not even scratch the surface and not go too obvious. And I sent an email to Oliver because I was in a crisis, and I said, can I talk about Leontine Price? Is that too mainstream? And he said, for God's sakes, please talk about <laughs> Leontine Price because she deserves it. She is one of the first operatic names that I ever knew, even before I knew anything about opera, and one of the earliest singers that I ever listened to. Well, I was like, talk about Leontine Price. <laughs> Newsflash, Bear has defecated in a forest. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about Leontine Price for me, though, is that she, like, she's such a legend. She's so famous. She's so important that sometimes I take for granted how great of a singer she is Mm -hmm. and when you listen to it you're just i'm bowled over again by how good she is and she's not even just a singer she's an institution how did she come to opera she grew up actually in uh segregated mississippi she was born Mm -hmm. in 1927 in laurel mississippi she saw marian anderson perform as a child Mm -hmm. which she has said was one of her uh, that was one of her influences, but she didn't become a performer until after she'd already got worked on a degree in education and ended up getting a full ride to Juilliard to study opera. Oh, and nice. actually, funny thing, a couple influence, early influences that happened at Juilliard, she went to go see her first, or not her first opera, she went to go see what she calls her most influential opera experience, which was... Zalame. Hey, I talked about that on my, on my already in the OBS <laughs> Hall of Fame. <laughs> and she started a, a longtime collaboration with the composer Samuel Barber. And uh, so I've got my clip number one roll that I want to roll, which is a, a selection from the Cleopatra's death scene from uh, Samuel Barber's Antony and Cleopatra.
I'm going to admit that that is not a barber opera that's done that often. It is no. very underrated. It was well, it was kind of a flop because the production wasn't very good and most of the opera people said were not great, but that singing and her yeah. and the music for Cleopatra I think is just spectacular. So it's kind of one of those things where when I listen to that and I don't know, you know, we have a lot of singers I know that listen to the show and and we're singers here and we listen to opera quite a bit, but if you're not intimately familiar with the voice, one of the things about Leontine Price that sticks out, the top and her her chest and the middle, they're all there all the time. Yeah. And so she goes from straight to the middle there right into that first high note. And I'll admit, I've never even heard this clip before. And it's stunning because the balance and the power and the warmth, and there's no disconnect anywhere. And right. that's what makes her such a powerful presence. They're not necessarily as unified as you'd get from like a Joan Sutherland voice where everything is smooth from top to bottom. But all three, like all parts of her voice are so human and so raw. And they ha- it, it just has a really exciting gleam to it when I listen to it. I It gives me goosebumps just thinking about Leontine Price's voice sometimes. Well, it's less of a... It's hard to describe that too. And I think you'll probably talk about this later. It's not so much that she's producing a sound as she's just singing. She she Yeah, exactly. And it's a voice that often gets described with opposite word, like words that, that contradict each other. It's soulful, but it's pure. It's dark and dusky and smoky, but it's silvery and white hot. And it's ferocious, but it's also tender. And most of these I pulled he from things. He just described a delightful I... red blend that I'm going to have with my steak this evening. <laughs> most of those I pulled from things that people have written about her in, in critical reviews. Like Those are all adjectives that get assigned to the same voice. Uh, and what I always hear when I listen to her is the warmth of her voice, both how warm vocally it is and you can kind of feel like it's a warm bath that you're getting into but also her human warmth and her dignity and i think that that comes through especially well in clip number two (laughs) nice (laughs) segue (laughs) which is uh a clip from leonora's act four aria in trovatore and this is from a live performance hold on hold on but before we do that i have a question yeah what act act four okay yeah So that to me is pretty bold singing. There are some daring choices that she takes there in her phrasing and how much she sells it, particularly in how she's not afraid to take any time 
at at those fra- at, in those long long phrases. She takes a lot of time at the end. But at she, the end, that would be even difficult to conduct. Yeah, I mean, you're basically putting the orchestra on standstill. But she, <laughs> and yet, you so you can put an orchestra on standstill, but you can never put an audience on standstill. And if you're, and if you are, it means you have to have reached out with your voice and grabbed them by the collar and said, "Listen to exactly what I'm saying," mm-hmm. which is what she did there at the end of that phrase. And there are some singers like uh, like Elizabeth Schwarzkopf who will get described as an instrumental singer. And Leontine mm. Price for me is like the opposite of that. She is always singing. She's a vocal singer. What is an instrumental singer? It, uh, an, 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 an instrumental <laughs> singer is more someone. Can I try that again? <laughs> uh, Matthew, what is an instrumental singer? It's someone that doesn't necessarily use the same uh, range of dynamics and may uh, or tone qualities the way the way that she is com- it's like oppressively accurate yes <laughs> that she is, her tone doesn't always stay the same throughout a phrase or even throughout a note but it always feels organic and that really comes through in this next clip Segway, which is a, a selection of a spiritual uh swing low sweet chariot and it was she recorded this in about the same year as she recorded, the, as she did that performance of Trovatore just now. Okay. She also recorded the background vocals <laughs> on that one. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Matt Cummings walking us through the OBS Hall of Fame, Volume 2, with Leontine Price. Yeah, so that arrangement is maybe a little dated. But, you know, sometimes you listen to opera singers singing spirituals, and you're just like, oh, my God, this is so mannered. This is so fussy. I can't. I can't listen to this. That's not what I heard. She's just singing. It's so organic. It's it's natural. I the the I read a little bit of the line notes where she's like, "These are songs that I sang in my childhood, and they're just great." And the voice just pours out of her. Mm-hmm. And the thing, so something we haven't really mentioned yet about Leontine Price is that she is an African American soprano, mm-hmm. and she came of age singing in the late fifties, early sixties. So that was an important time, <laughs> just a little bit, to be an African American soprano. And she was not the first African American singer at the Metropolitan Opera, and she wasn't even the first one to do a leading role. But she was the first star, and yeah. she was their first, you know, African American diva. The Antony and Cleopatra clip that we heard from earlier—that was the opening night of Lincoln Center. They picked her specifically to sing in a new opera, a new role, at a new opera house. I wish the Met still had that kind of edgy program. Yeah, <laughs> but I um, yeah, loved about real. that last chip, uh, last uh, clip was that she's. It felt to me, you know, when we say it's organic and and all of that. It felt to me like she was singing because she loved to sing it. Yeah, and I can really appreciate a singer who has immense talent um, and status. And at that point, she did. 
but you still sing just because you love to sing, not because you have golden handcuffs and are contracted for the next five years or whatever. And if you want to record a spiritual, um, and what was interesting about that, she never left her chest. She yeah. just, she was just there. She was at peace. And I think that comes across and that's why it's so effective to hear that. And I think it's funny that we get to hear swing low, sweet chariot. Um, with that ease and with that grace and, and peace, and then you get to hear Trovatore. Well, she was rather subdued in the, tro- in the Trovatore clip, but I don't know what's coming up next. It, it It's going to be a little clip from Madame Butterfly, which what? I think, which I think uh, really is shows... Is she agitated? She is. This is right before she commits suicide. <laughs> uh, and I want... And even though it's dramatic and agitated... Wait, hold on, Matt. Spoiler alert. Okay. okay. For all the people who have never <laughs> right. seen Madam Butterfly, so even you got to slow down. Even though it's... <laughs> My God. It's dramatic and it's agitated. I don't feel like it. I'm just going to steamroll over this. But it, I don't ever feel like it is over the top or like it's, you know, a caricature of a person. She's still human here. Take us to church, Leontine. <laughs> you know, it's not, it, it, and it does, it's not technically perfect, but to me, it's pretty perfect. It's just otherworldly beautiful. It's so emotionally locked in to what the scene is about, too. I, I feel like with a lot of, with a lot of these sort of uh, singers from her era, you, there's, there's sometimes a sort of a disconnect between what's vocally going on and what. It feels like in the scene, and she's got it. You yeah. know what I? So you can hear the vocal intensity. I would love to be on stage with her. I think Ooh, I think that that I... was from a studio recording. But the stu- the difference between her studio <laughs> recordings and her live recordings is not much. You know, some singers. Could you, you imagine can really her tell. Look, walking out and looking at you at, just in this fit of rage? Too, too. I'd follow too, her. Yeah. I mean, like I'd be like, uh, Haley Antine. And this is a singer, you know, butterfly, I will get out of your way here. This is a singer who, you know, made a name for herself doing these larger than life tragedy heroines. And I think what made her really stand out is how human they all are. And she was able between that and her voice, she was able to become an institution. She's one of the last I, I realized this while I was reading about her. She's one of the last remaining like institutions of the Metropolitan Opera, like important people who have worked at the Metropolitan Opera mm. and are synonymous with it, who are before the era of James Levine. 
Oh, that's important. Oh, boy. <laughs> she, I mean, they definitely worked together, but she was there back in the Rudolph Bing era. That was, it's a, it was a different world oh, yeah. when she what took the stage. What year was that butterfly recording from? I believe it was from 1960. 60. Oh, wow. So she's still incredibly young. Yeah. Are and any of these later recordings? So the next one that I was going to play, he set me up for it. He set you right this up. This is from her farewell performance in opera, which I, was in... I, I threw you an alley-oop. Yeah, he got it. He got it. I, I know what that is because you taught me about <laughs> basketball. Uh... But this is from her farewell performance to the Met in Aida, which I want to say was in 1985, definitely mid-80s. But she's almost 60 years old here, and she's still singing incredibly well. This is uh, a little bit of the climactic phrases of O Patria Mia from Aida. That's a high C for those of you keeping score out there. <laughs> That's a, quite a retirement piece. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just this warm, dignified humanity that comes through every time she sings. And she's she's a national treasure is, is really all I have to say. And I'm so glad that we get the chance to talk about her while she's still alive. Can I share uh, something about her and Aida? This, yeah, this is a good story. Okay, this is, I'm, and I'm not going to claim to have knowledge. I literally read this on Wikipedia, but I thought it was awesome. In the fall of 1981... She had a late career triumph when she stepped in for soprano Margaret Price as Aida in San Francisco, a role she'd not sung no since night. Right. <laughs> a role she'd not sung since 1976. The San Francisco Chronicle columnist Herbert Kane reported reported that she'd insisted on being paid one dollar more than the tenor <laughs> Luciano Pavarotti. <laughs> this would have made her, for the moment, the highest paid opera singer in the world. <laughs> the Opera House denied that these were the terms of her contract, but I'm gonna try. I, I I hope that that's true. It's just I than the love. Truth. That. I want it to be true in so many ways. In my heart, it's true. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna have. I'm gonna send it over to Leontine to take us out. This is this last clip that I picked out is from 2001, right after the terrorist attacks. Mm. Uh, and it's her performing for the first time in public in quite a while. She was in her 70s. And this is the little bit of the end of God Bless America.
I mean, look, Leontine Price, she was doing Renee Fleming at the Super Bowl before Renee Fleming was doing Renee Fleming at the Super Bowl. No joke, Toby has literal actual goosebumps right now. Everywhere. Yeah. And here's, can I share why? If every singer that said they were an opera singer sang with that much conviction or an ounce of the conviction that 74-year-old Leontine Price sang that God Bless America with... We would have a better world. We would have a better artistic world, and we would be a whole lot better off. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more for me to say. Thanks for everything, Leontine. This is Opera Box School with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. And now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Welcome back once again to the Opera Box Score Hall of Fame. And as you can tell by the music, if you are as big a fan of him as I am, we're inducting John Adams. <laughs> the president? The president. The, president. the other president? <laughs> uh, certainly the more worthy of the other possibility uh, uh, inducting right now. Uh, yes, uh, so John Adams, uh, this is what happens when Oliver and uh, George are gone. I get to induct whoever I want into the opera box scroll into the hallowed halls <laughs> along the likes of Luciano Pavarotti, oh, Pavarotti. Shirley Verrett, oh, Shirley Benjamin Britten, oh, ben Leontine Price, Price. <laughs> the opera Salome. <laughs> That's right. That was the first one. I did misunderstand the prompt initially, but we, we got it. We got it now. So John Adams, uh, a very, very exciting day for me. I'm literally like, you know, uh, quaking a little bit because I'm so excited. Weston is not a small human. He's a very tall <laughs> Tall man, but he is like a little boy on Christmas. I'm so excited. So, John Adams, uh, if you don't know who he is, uh, he is a living American composer. Uh, he was born in 1947 in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I think it's uh, Worcester, Worcester, Worcester. Worcester. Worcester, yeah, it's Massachusetts. They never pronounce it right. Worcestershire. Worcestershire sauce. Wo- Worcester, uh, Massachusetts. Worcester. <laughs> That's where he was born. And the reason I want to talk about him so much is because uh, he was the first living opera composer uh i ever encountered um i I think i might have heard like little bits here and there of other composers i might have heard like a a bit of philip glass here and there but never really connected and i remember that when i was um oh i couldn't have probably middle school 
uh, I was uh, going around and I encountered, um, I don't even think it was one of his operas. I think it was uh, probably uh, Harmony Lara or something like that. And I listened to it and I'm like, this isn't unlike anything I've ever heard before. Uh, it's, uh, and I, I got really excited, did lots of research, and I found that he was a living composer who was still writing operas, which in that time period for me was, was mind-blowing uh, that there were living composers that still wrote. I, I was like nominally aware of it, but I never like fully comprehended it right uh, because a, a lot of a, a lot of I, I think this is a problem that i think a lot of uh modern composers uh especially the last couple of decades of the 20th century ran into stupid millennial is that <laughs> is that they a lot of them were composing in sort of a uh you know throwbacky kind of style um i think the newest opera i'd ever heard uh, in my dad's cd collection was ballad of baby doe which is uh, not modernist. No, it's got, it's got some great hits, but it's famous because yeah. Beverly Sills liked to sing Exactly, it. and that's why my dad had it. Um, but John Adams is something new, something I discovered. So in addition to it being uh, the first living uh, opera composer I had discovered, it was the first time I had really discovered something that my dad knew nothing about. Um, and uh, I, I just absolutely love it. So to give you a little bit of background, his, uh, he was born in 47, so he was uh, uh, trained in sort of, you know, the serialist idiom like all you know composers in that era and like many composers he abandoned that uh, initially for uh, uh, an attempt at minimalism so his early stuff is very influenced by Philip Glass and uh, and uh, Steve Reich but don't let that dissuade you if you're not fans of those because in, he very quickly sort of transcends them uh, he uh, Artistically, he's he's not really polystylistic, but he has sort of an Ivesian quality to him mm-hmm. in that he he uses influences from all over the place, uh, particularly New England, which is uh, really holds up with the, uh, the the Ives comparison. His parents are both jazz musicians. He listens to rock music back before um, composers admitted to doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, and it's just very exciting. So one of his early sort of successes was a piece called Shaker Loops. Um, well, once again, the New England connection there, uh, which premiered in 1978. Um, very minimalist, but there's a, there's a, a drama to it. If you ever listen to this piece, uh, I'm not going to play any of it because it's not an opera, um, but I highly recommend it because it has like this overarching sort of almost uh, dramatic quality to it. It evolves in a way that um, minimalist music at the time just did not do uh and uh it was at one of these performances that uh uh peter sellers the opera director was in the audience and he's and saw- opera bad boy director opera- specifically <laughs> he likes to do weird things i'm pretty sure george is the uh, bad boy of opera directors but um uh, agree to disagree uh but peter sellers um uh, heard the piece and he was like now that is an opera composer uh, and he had to actually like convince John Adams that that was the case initially, but then they eventually sort of uh, collaborated and created their first opera together, uh, which premiered uh, in 1987, and that was of course Nixon in China, uh, which is just. A delightful piece. Um, I agree. It, it's I, probably the masterpiece of the mid twentieth century. I- exactly. Well, sort of la- last quarter. Yeah. Yeah, I would say. Let's just listen to just a little bit of um, probably the most famous aria. Uh, this is from the uh, the original recording. This is James Madalena, the uh, the original Nixon singing. Um, uh, uh, news has a kind of mystery. News, 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 news,
As you can hear in that clip, there is a lot of the minimalist influence. You've got the minimalist pulse going on. You've got repetition of words and phrases. Um, but there's something a little different about it. There's something human about it compared to like Glass or Steve right. Reich. Mm-hmm. It's got this drive to it. It's got this humor. Uh, obviously, there's some humor in the text. Uh, as he says, listening, he starts repeating uh, listening as the as uh, Zhou Enlai, who he's uh, supposed to be talking to. He's not listening to him. Uh, you know, and th- this is actually a pretty funny opera. There's lots of really good jokes in it um, uh, and not just uh, in the libretto which is by Alice Goodman but uh, in the music this is one of the first uh, really notable examples of what separates John Adams from many of the minimalists in his early works what he calls the trickster which is a little rhythmic uh, and often tonal interruption in that pulse uh, in the uh, normal pulse of the piece and it's, you hear it a lot it, in the trumpets which creates especially. a sense of urgency mixed with the humanity right Often in his early pieces, uh, it, it literally is a trickster. It literally is a joke, um, uh, sort of throwing everything off. Later on in, the, in uh, that particular ar- aria, um, he's, he's, he sings, the nation's heartland skips a beat and the orchestra skips a beat. And it, it's great. It's a, it's a, it's a great piece. Um, but this is something that was very, very, very new uh, and very different from what you would uh, have expected in opera houses of this time. So if you, t- if you go back in time to 1987... Uh, Opera in America, especially new opera, is kind of in crisis um, because uh, this is sort of the heyday of the sort of 70s and 80s catering only to uh, uh, often the very rich, or at least that was the perception in a lot of the large houses, um, doing very conservative programming, even more conservative than we have nowadays a lot of these same places. Um, it's a lot of old war horses over and over and over again. New but, operas. Which leads me to believe that there's always been a crisis about new opera audiences oh, possibly the, the killing list of thing the list of th- this the list of things that has been uh claimed to kill music goes all the way back <laughs> to like the printing press yeah but sorry but yeah I, there's th- there's sort of like no heir apparent to the samuel barber and even the exactly. Giancarlo Minotti, who's like controversial in his own right but they were you know they were pushing the envelope forward they weren't just doing they weren't just doing the same thing over and over again <laughs> mm-hmm. well you kind of have a sort of a weird situation where the the opera going public was listening to these hyper conservative pieces all of the new operas being written were either in a sort of a neo-romantic sort of dull idiom um or or they were being imported from europe in the hyper serialist mode and no one wanted to listen to that and then in the middle you have uh philip glass's early operas which while very interesting are not everyone's cup of tea Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nixon there was China, no there was no apparent 
international composer in America, from America. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So enter Nixon in China, and here you have uh, an unapologetically dramatic, funny piece that is not re- rehashing neo-romanticism, old things that have been done. He's not trying to be Puccini um, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but he's also not trying to be this European heady uh, avant-garde, and he's not trying to be Philip Glass with his weird things. Everything is serving the story. Everything is serving um, the humor in, in the text, and the uh, and it's a very relevant sort of up-to-the-minute kind of uh, story, because this is, you know, this is 1980. Nixon's first visit to China is in living memory for most of your audience. Mm, yeah. um, uh, and and it's, uh, it's one of those things where it feels very fresh, feels very relevant, but it's entertaining, it's fun, it's doing something new, it's doing everything opera should be doing. And it's still incredibly technically difficult and virtuosic music to Absolutely. sing. Absolutely. Madame Mao's aria from, oh, from Nixon in China is famous for being one of the most techli- technically demanding pieces for a coloratura soprano you and need just a nightmare. I recommend to all of our listeners... If if you search Kathleen Kim singing uh, uh, the, uh, I Am the Wife of Mao Zedong on YouTube, it's right there, and she it is. There's it will one, knock your there's socks one from a young singer on YouTube that who where the time of the video is a full two minutes shorter than every other video because she takes her <laughs> so fast. Oh, and I'm going to send it to Weston so that he can oh, put it up on the website because it is do. just incredible. It's yes. one of the most well, the, amazing things I've ever heard. One of the other things, too, that I think is really important to acknowledge about everything you're just saying is that we were kind of in this period where it was all the old war horses conservative programming and nixon in china did kind of pay homage to that it is american grand opera absolutely there is nothing small about it the staging has to be dramatic there's it's such a a helicopter called for there's air force one One, yeah (laughs) there's there's literally i mean if you've and that's pretty iconic it it makes it makes live recordings uh unlistenable because everyone always applauds when uh air force one comes down (laughs) no but like that to me you could show me that a screenshot of that and i'm like nixon in china and you could show me like the triumphal march from aida and i'm like aida it's that it's that iconic in in its grandiose nature of what it was supposed to be and what it represented and i think that was really brilliant yeah. on his part to, to say, well, if I'm going to do this and create this thing that was for all these people who are alive, it had to be relatable in that aspect as well, visually. Right. And I mean, what a stroke of genius. It, it's so good. Uh, I, if you haven't seen Nixon in China, what are you doing? Go see it. Uh, go make your uh, local opera company play it. Uh, the, <laughs> the next Coming opera, to Toledo. And all that. <laughs> <laughs> the next opera by John Adams is probably the most unusual, and it's also the one that people sometimes... Uh, have trouble with for various reasons. If you might know about it just from the controversies. Yes, you might. Um, uh, this is the opera The Death of Klinghoffer. Uh, and uh, I think most recent, well, maybe not most recently, but recently in the news, this was the opera that um, was originally going to be a broadcast live in HD from the Metropolitan Opera, uh, what, about like three seasons ago? Uh, 2014. 2014. 2014. Yeah. Uh, oh, man, time flies. I know. Oh, geez. I remember learning that it was can- canceled right whilst on a bus to go watch a northwestern football game <laughs> right uh, it's it, little did i know i'd be talking about it today here. i i, oh. I, I remembered it too because i was that was one of the ones i was like you know obviously at this point i was a big adam's head as we're called probably uh and uh <laughs> and uh as I, we're uh, called now i i heard the news and i was like oh oh man news. oh no <laughs> i get it that's good um, but uh, but the reason um, it uh, it was no longer allowed to be played uh, was uh, because of pressure from the Anti Defamation League. Because this opera is often uh, accused of anti-Semitism uh, because it it deals with 
um, a very specific incident. This is the hijacking of a, uh, a passenger liner um, um, by uh, Palestinian terrorists uh, who uh, killed uh, a man named Leon Klinghoffer, who was uh, Jewish. And one of the things that Peter Sellers, John Adams, and um, Alice Goodman wanted to get across was sort of this idea that uh, both the Palestinians and Israelis had some sort of uh, claim to their homeland and, and a, a similar sort of sense of being forced out. Uh, and to many people, that came across as a sympathetic uh, portrayal of terrorists, which people were not a fan of. <laughs> and <laughs> a minimalizing of a brutal murder. Right. And I think that... that uh, I think that uh, a lot of the controversy surrounding, uh, you know, intention of, uh, of, uh, well, I, I should say that this is not just uh, uh, um, criticism from um, Jewish groups. This is also from Palestinian groups. Palestinian groups also have uh, kept this production from being played at various points in time. Um, a lot of that, I think, is a little bit over-exaggerated. However, I do think that using a living person um, well, uh, in this case, a recently deceased person, uh, Leon Klinghoffer, as a subject to the opera, it was a mistake. And it was something that uh, John Adams has never done again, uh, really, um, because the, 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 uh, the Klinghoffer daughters came to see the show when it premiered. Uh, um, and um, they came out publicly and said they just absolutely hated it. And th that's something that I feel like if I wrote something, I was like, well, maybe we did mess up something. Mm. Um, however... Musically speaking, it's a fascinating piece. It's 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 uh, John Adams. I think his weirdest uh, opera. It's very synth heavy. It's very experimental. A lot of harsh sounds. There's also sort of the beginning of his sort of uh, putting in sort of oratorio like choruses. And we're just gonna hear a little bit of uh, the night chorus uh, from Death of Klinghoffer. It's very scary. <laughs> And that is uh, just a little selection there of uh, Death of Klinghoffer. And unfortunately, we're running low on time because I could just talk about John Adams all day long. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of his comeback. After the controversy of Death of Klinghoffer, wherever you uh, fall in that spectrum of, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> of liking it or hating it, for whatever reason, um, it, it, uh, it ended up sort of ending Alice Goodman's career. Um, and uh, But Peter Sellers and John Adams eventually came back together um, uh, in 2005, I believe, to uh, create uh, Dr. Atomic, which is one of my favorites. This one, uh, this one, you can see a lot of the mistakes of Klinghoffer being avoided, uh, and as well as a sort of a, um, uh, an extension of, of Adams stylistically into a much more melodic, uh, romantic sort of medium, while still retaining everything that makes it John Adams-y. Uh, uh, it, uh, this one is set in a uh, um, around the creation of the atomic bomb uh, the, for the Manhattan Project. Uh, and uh, we're just going to hear just a little bit of um, uh, Robert Oppenheimer quoting poetry uh, as he contemplates um, uh, the, uh, the, what he's created.
that's just one of the most sort of haunting moments. And you see a combination of uh, electronics, um, uh, really sort of slower sounds. The pulse is not is there, but it's slow. It's dramatic. It's 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 a truly extraordinary opera, and one that didn't I think get a lot of respect when it initially came out due to a lot of subpar productions kind of right off the bat. But there's a studio recording of this with Gerald Finley, uh, which is what this uh, recording is from, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. And one of the exciting things about John Adams being a living composer is that he's still doing new stuff. He's still trying new things, and his style is still developing. So we're just going to go into the break here with just a little bit from his uh, sort of opera oratorio, more oratorio than opera, uh, The Gospel According to the Other Mary. And this is when um, the... uh, Um, The biblical character of Lazarus has been uh, resurrected and he sort of has a little freak out being back in the world of the living. And it's it's just such a great aria. Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer. Our enthusiastic, yet humble, Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Who the heck was that? That is the reason we are all here today. <laughs> Not just for this segment, but like in life in general. Yes, yes. <laughs> this we is the reason we are alive. That we are. That is the reason we are all here today. We are here to talk about the love of my soprano life, Belle 
Miriam Silverman, otherwise known as Bubbles or Beverly <laughs> freaking Sills. Okay, so that recording was uh, Non Disperar, which is from Giulio Cesare by Handel. That's a recording from 1968 when she performed this with the Cleveland Orchestra uh, in the Severance Hall radio broadcast. And, like, that sounded... I mean, anybody can do that, right? Anybody can sing. Like, it's so easy. Toby certainly can. Definitely. Come on. So, okay. So the reason that I wanted to nominate her for our Hallowed Hall is because I consider her to be the first American opera star to be fully American in the way that she kind of blazed her own career Hmm. from how and when she chose her roles to her, you know, blunt and candid speech to her third and fourth career inventions. She was... In my opinion, every kind of one of a kind. Uh, You know, I don't just love her voice, which, as we just heard, is silvery and exquisite and butter and the definition of lyric coloratura. I I love her besides the talent. I love that she made this career, you know, facing a lot of significant challenges and really just kind of on her own terms. Were you calling it uh, silvery because um, uh, as a pun on Ballad of Baby Doe? Uh, well, that's pretty specific, <laughs> but sure, why not? Um, yeah, no, I mean, definitely. You'll, guys, you'll, listeners, you'll get that in a second. Um, so, um, yeah, so to really get into sort of the the how and the why of, of how much I love Beverly Sills and why I came to her is you got to have a two-minute origin story on yours truly, Ashley Hargrave. Um, so my, uh, my first music teachers were in order, my family, church, TV, and the Motown record label. Um, I did not grow up with classical music in my mm. house. Um, everything that I learned was Baptist hymns. It was listening to my mom teach piano lessons. It was quizzes on Four Tops lyrics from my dad, a very extensive Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross phase, and then whatever was playing on television. <laughs> that is, that's what I knew music was, and frankly, that's all that I knew music was. So you was. didn't go to uh, Louisa Miller in elementary not, school like the rest of us? I did not join eight-year-old Weston <laughs> at Louisa Miller, no. Um, <laughs> but around, <laughs> around the time that I was eight, we did get cable TV and there was a channel called Arts and Entertainment which was the original A&E before they just started showing Law and Order all the time right. uh, and <laughs> that is where I saw for the first time an orchestra that is where I saw a conductor for the first time I saw ballet and most importantly I saw reruns of The Muppet Show uh, oh. which included a very specific episode with one Miss Beverly Sills and she was making <laughs> these sounds that I had only ever heard come out of one other person and that was my grandmother so my dad's mom was a novice singer and she actually was invited to study in new york city at a conservatory in the 1940s Uh, she Mm. was wickedly wickedly talented but she also at that time in the 40s already had two children and a husband so she was basically relegated to the back row of the baptist church in rural arkansas where we grew up you know just kind of belting out just as i am but with this gorgeous lyric soprano voice and i'd never heard anybody that sounded like her before or since until I saw this episode of The Muppet Show and this beautiful woman in a white dress who was singing on television with pig puppets. So <laughs> we cut to graduate school and I'm in conservatory. I studied music in undergrad, but to be fair, you know, I was originally going to go to law school. So I was just kind of enjoying undergrad and I wasn't really following the legacies of singers. Um, but by the time I got to conservatory and I was taking it seriously, I was told that I was going to be groomed as a lyric coloratura soprano. And I was given the task of going and researching a few singers. And one of them was Beverly Sills. Now, again, <laughs> Not knowing that much about the legacies of singers, I just went to the Harold Washington Library and started picking up CDs. And one of the albums that I saw was Beverly Sills. And I'm not kidding. I said out loud in the middle of the library, it's that lady from The Muppet Show. (laughs) Um, So, like I said, you know, again, my... My classical music education was kind of all over the place. Um, But it was really, you know, once I started to discover what she did and how beautiful it was and how effortless it was, I I started to want to learn everything about her, not just the music that she was making, but kind of her life story. And 
all of the things that kind of made her the human on top of the artist that she was. She obviously had the talent. She had this passion also to reach out to new types of audiences. She's one of the first people that really sort of of got the understanding that to make this art form popular in America, it was going to have to go past the houses in major cities. You were going to have to go out into, you know, places where they didn't have a mat, places where they didn't have, you know, a a San Francisco or a Lyric Opera of Mm -hmm. Chicago. Uh, You know, she had a lot of really, you know, interesting challenges in the beginning of her career and a number of personal adversities that she had to move past. And she did it all with this beautiful style and grace. Um, One of the things that I really love about her was that she was really committed to being for lack of a better term, just American. You know, she was she was a first generation American. She didn't have an interest in going overseas to make her career. She really wanted to do it here to stay kind of close to her family and her family responsibilities. And so I thought it was really fitting that one of her first triumphs was this distinctly American opera that was really kind of the first famous one in the canon. It really became a calling card for her. I believe we have a little bit of that. I think we do. Let's yes. take a little listen. What's the what's the opera? Uh, this is Douglas Moore's The Ballad of Baby Doe. This is uh, I know people will, will refer to some of the other Baby Doe arias, but my personal favorite because I had to learn it and I sang it a whole bunch uh, <laughs> was the silver aria for a silver voice lady. That was gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, girl can hang. She can uh, absolutely. Hang. Uh, yeah. It's such an amazing uh, role for her specifically. Uh, I feel like Baby Doe isn't done too much nowadays, uh, but she she so defined th- uh, that opera for me. You know, um, uh, that was one of the ones my dad was always a, such a huge fan of. He's a big uh, Sills head. I don't know what 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 her Babyfully Sills oh, fans call him. TM TM TM. Like We're that. keeping Sills head. Yeah. <laughs> That's ours now. That's it. We've coined it. TM. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that aria in particular is just so, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of reflective and indicative of kind of how she lived life, you know, because the text of this is, you know, we're we're talking about, you know, Baby Doe and her relationship with Horace Tabor, who is this wealthy gold magnate. And and so the the. The, the the currency of value at that time was gold. Mm-hmm. And she says in the beginning, gold is a fine thing. Like, yeah, that's totally great, but silver. Let's talk about silver. Mm-hmm. How it's the the you know, it's the the metal of the moon. It's the core of dreams. And so in a lot of ways, Sills kind of did the same thing. It's like, yeah, this is the you know, with her path to success, this is the way most people do it. 
I'm going to do it this way. So in a lot of ways, I think that's just a really lovely metaphor for kind of how she uh, how she lived her her musical life. But can we talk about this voice for a second? Can we talk <laughs> about the technique? Can we talk about the movement, the flexibility, the musicianship? She is, I mean, sorry to go back to the other metal, but the gold standard of combining legato that's effortless and insanely fast coloratura, which you didn't really hear in that one, but we'll we'll get to that one in a second. Um, it's it's beautiful. It's, you uh, know, in, in a way it's disarming. It's mm-hmm. terrifying. And for somebody who is a, a music student, a soprano like me, I, it's, it's a little annoying that like, I will never <laughs> be that good. Like nothing I do. It's okay. No one else will be either. <laughs> Seriously. No, like nobody. And that's not like to her. say that you're not great. No, oh, you're darn right. I'm great. I mean, we'll put you in the Hall of Fame next week. You know week. what? It'll I can hang. I'll put it that way. I can <laughs> hang. Um, I'm no Sills. I'm no Sills. I'm a huge Sills head. Or what do we say? Sills. Was Sills head. Sills, Sills head. head. Yeah. Sills head. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, but it, but it is. I mean, it's, it's so beautiful. It's almost upsetting. Like you're almost mad that somebody has that kind of talent and makes it sound so flip and easy. Speaking of that talent and going to the other side of what her voice can do. Um, why don't we take a minute and let's look at uh, look a little more at the role that kind of made her more of an international star after she kind of made her her way in America. Um, let's hear a little bit more of Cleopatra in Handel's Giulio Cesare. This is the same concert in Cleveland uh, in 1968. This is the uh, Di Capo section of Da Tempeste, which is uh, it's a it's a barn burner. So buckle your seatbelt, kids. <laughs> So, yeah, there's all that. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, thoughts, Weston. Thoughts, feelings, concerns, prayer uh, requests. The the Giulio Cesare (laughs) uh, phenomenon is always so interesting to me because I, I feel like, you know, uh, we've grown up, I think, in a world of the bar- the great Baroque revival, mm-hmm. uh, and Beverly Sills had a really, I think, key role uh, in kind of kicking it off. Um, even though she didn't do a lot with like period instruments or that sort of thing, uh, but the popularity of her Giulio Cesare and the way she just absolutely nails it is. Uh, 
I, I think deserves a lot of the credit for the quality of Baroque music we now enjoy here in the 21st century, which is a weird sentence to say. <laughs> no, but no, <laughs> I, think I think you're totally right about that, though, because, yeah, I mean, when when she first kind of came onto the scene, you know, bringing down houses with mm -hmm, this piece, mm -hmm. it wasn't as widely done as it is now. Exactly. So now we have a lot of young singers that, you know, have have grown up on these recordings or at least in their conservatory lives and have sort of taken bits and pieces of her ornamentation and, and make them sound incredible. But she didn't have that. She she didn't have a YouTube. She didn't have recordings mm -hmm. to listen. You know, she was doing this all on her own. And it was, again, kind of harkens back to something I'll talk about in a second. Her her ability to grow as an improviser on stage was something that hmm. was was really interesting. But yeah, so, there, so there's all that. So yeah, clearly she's, I mean, she's all right. She can sing. She's she okay. can sing. What else can she's, she do? You know, the thing is her, her musicianship was only a fraction of what made her an absolute star of her time. You know, her, her cover in 1971 of Time Magazine that was, you know, the uh, American opera queen. She was keenly aware of what it took to bring opera and classical music to the masses. And the great thing about her was she had the personality to really sell those things and reach that. She understood not everybody, like I mentioned before, was going to be able to get to a city with an opera house. So what she did is she toured the country extensively to college towns, smaller towns with recitals. Um, there was a really charming thing that she did where she, she only had one voice teacher ever in her entire life. Really? Yes, yes. Uh, her voice teacher's name was Estelle Liebling. And her, Estelle had taught her a Portuguese folk song when she was 10. And she closes, or uh, yes, she past tense closed every single recital she did with this song. And it was actually mm. the very last piece that she sang on stage in her farewell, or farewell concert. It is, we might have to link that on our website. It is, it is, it is just a tearjerker of a piece. We'll put it on the website for Absolutely you. Absolutely <laughs> amazing. So yeah, so I mean, so she, again, she's one of the first people to like take things to the masses, take it to where they are and not expect people to come to her. You know, with this personality, then she started to harness the talk show circuit as she was really becoming famous in the 60s and 70s. So girlfriends on Johnny Carson, Dick Cavett, Merv Griffin, Dinah Shore, and then, and then Weston, she was so good at talk shows that they gave her one for two years and what? she got an <laughs> Emmy for it. Amazing. Yes. yes. Lifestyles with Beverly Sills. I believe we have a... Guys, you've got to hear the theme song oh, for this. Oh, I'm so oh, excited. so good. Here we go. I'm Beverly Sills, and welcome to Lifestyle. May I just say, that is the platonic ideal of 70s talk show music right there. I want that music <laughs> to follow me everywhere. As soon as I leave my house in the morning, I just want that to be playing as, like, my underbacking as I as I move on throughout my day. I just, I want to be in, like, a cream-colored silk blouse with, like, air-blown hair. Oh, my God. Everything about it is so good. So, yeah. So, she, she went on talk shows and became famous for that. She was making the rounds as a recitalist. She finally gained international acclaim with Giulio Cesare. Uh, you know, she's doing all this really cool stuff. And then finally, the place where I found her the most accessible was uh, was on The Muppet Show. Uh, it so all comes back to The Muppet Show. I say this every episode. Come back, <laughs> it always comes back to The Muppet Show. So uh, in 1979, she did an appearance there. It's episode number 409. Um, the segment is called uh, Pigaletto, uh, but it actually goes through a couple of different pieces. And I'm sure you will recognize them as you're, as you're going through this. So just picture like the grand dame of opera at the pinnacle of her career. She's in a fabulous white gown. She's in a sea of felt pig puppets. And then she does this. Simple and 
wasn't expecting the the Wagner in that and I absolutely love it <laughs> I mean and here's the thing though is that like it would have been so easy for her to just kind of like phone it in and have and, and just be not taking it particularly seriously she sounds incredible mm-hmm. in that clip mm-hmm. not to put too mm-hmm. fine a point on it but she goes whole hog as she does her duet uh, like his piggy yeah no I mean that's the thing that was so fascinating I mean and just imagine like you know seven-year-old Ashley just you know eyes as big as saucepans just like <laughs> who is TV. this woman she sounds like my grandma no one else has sounded like this and then cut to 20 some odd years later and I'm like weeping in a Harold Washington library remembering my grandma and this moment and yeah she's she's everything she's fantastic um so yeah she's got this incredible talent by the way if you were going through the trajectory of those operas you heard Traviata you heard Carmen you heard Aida and Valkyrie and if we had kept going you would have actually gotten to the Pigoletto section um so (laughs) the other thing I really liked about her is that she again She's going her own way. She didn't sing at the Met until she was 40 in 1975. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rudolph Bing apparently wouldn't have her, but, I mean, clearly she didn't need him. Classic Bing, am I right? Classic Bing. No, but seriously. It really is classic Bing. (laughs) It is said, like, by the time she finally premiered at the Met, you know, the the phrase that people would use is she wasn't premiering at the Met. The Met was premiering with her. So that traditional (laughs) hallmark of success wasn't, wasn't a thing that she needed. She just did it her own way. You know, and then she ends up retiring from singing in 1980, kind of still in a, a relatively strong point in her career. She decides to, she wanted to remember her voice at its strongest point, which I think is actually right. a really lovely, real lovely thing. She did it with Grace and class. There's a gorgeous farewell concert that, again, has that Portuguese folk song in it. Uh, and then she took over uh, as the, the manager of New York City Opera. Fun fact about that, she auditioned for New York City Opera seven times before they hired her. Really? Seven times. They finally hired her in 1955. Nobody knew at the time when she took over New York City Opera after she'd retired how dire the straits were. They were actually oh. in a lot of financial trouble, and she took them from deeply in debt, knowing absolutely nothing about how to run a company, to thriving in just under six seasons. You know, singers wow. felt safe to go there and take risks because, again, this was a place that didn't have a great budget. They were very hard scrabble, and, again, it allowed for all of this great improvisation 
organization and, and thriftiness and craftiness when it came to making the art happen. And because she had been such a thrifty, crafty, and giving singer in her career, the entire industry owed her a favor. So when yeah. she became the boss, she cashed in on all of those and she absolutely won big. You know, she moves on after that. She, uh, she chairs the Lincoln Center. She does eventually chair at the Met, which I think is hilarious. Uh, and then she champions <laughs> charities like the March of Dimes. She even married and she had a family. One of the challenges she faced was that both of her children were born with, with disabilities. She took them on the road with her, despite hmm. all of these challenges that they had. Her, her daughter was born deaf. And so, oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and they had... They had a very, um, you know, they had a couple of challenging points in their relationship, but on the whole, you know, they, they really had a very, very healthy relationship as, as her daughter Muffy moved into adulthood. And through all of this, she rallies, she does it all on her own terms, and she sounded better than everybody else while doing it. There were so many companies that weren't interested in her. Kind of, kind of the reason that she's worthy for induction to the Hall of Fame um, is that she had two distinct careers. She had her singing Absolutely. career and then she had a whole, you know, almost 40 years after that in which mm -hmm. she dedicated to not just advancing the art form, but really, I mean, you're talking about March of Dimes. Her whole mission once she retired from singing, quote unquote, was to advance humanity. And that's why mm -hmm. I think Beverly Sills is overdue. Overdue for this Agreed. induction. <laughs> and in fact, Ashley, when you emailed us earlier and said that this is who you're going to do, I was like, wait, have we not already? Yeah. Leave it to the lady to come up with a good idea. What kind of like, <laughs> negligence have we been putting on this show? This is why we needed Ashley this whole time. We needed time. a woman's touch this whole time. <laughs> you know, uh, there's so many clips that I want to play for you, and we don't have time for all of them. There's Manon, there's Donanna, there's Rosalind, uh, there's Thais, there's ugh, so many. Um, but there's this really awesome interview, and again, we might. I might just link you guys to this later, but she did an interview in like 1986. She was still in her tenure at City Opera running it. And, and she just, uh, I have a little super cut of these pieces of advice and wise words that I just listen to on a loop periodically when I need a boost. Um, we're not going to play the whole thing, but we've got just a little bit that just kind of gives you an essence of who she was. I don't take defeat. I just don't. I don't even acknowledge it. I won't be defeated. It's a, it's a way of life with me. I I don't believe in the word. I simply don't believe there's anything that can't be accomplished if you stick with it. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right, I have a good call, bad call. I guess it's just me this week. I finally sat down. Now that the children have twisted my arm into getting the Disney Plus, I finally sat down to watch... Hamilton. So this is the archival multi-camera video they did with the original cast back in June of 2016. Hey, it only took me four years to watch it. It's good. It's not great. It's good. And I'll tell you what really fascinates me about Hamilton is less the show and more the mythology behind the show. How did it become the success that it is. Why did it become the success that it is? You could do a whole podcast on Hamilton. You could do a whole podcast series on Hamilton. I say it's a good call. I say check it out. If you do have Disney Plus or if you watch can watch it on great performances, let us know what you think. Opera gmail.com. All right, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. 
On Facebook, just search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, along with Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with earplugs in. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, July 15th, with an interview featuring composer Joel Puckett, plus more opera headlines. Two-Minute Drill is going to come back next week. More hot takes. The whole team will be here. And more of what you're missing. Join us.